This is your public radio station, KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm Kyle Kellums. This edition of our show includes a new virtual exhibit chronicling the 40-year history of the Women's Project in Arkansas, opening tomorrow. The Women's Project was doing things when nobody else was talking about them. In the 80s, the government was slashing social services and incarcerating more and more people. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich has that story in about three and a half minutes. Later, a new documentary about the history of autism includes a conversation with the first person diagnosed with autism. A special screening of the film in a different key is this weekend. We'll talk with the film's creators in our second half hour. The filing deadline has passed for candidates who will appear on ballots in Arkansas this election year. Filing closed yesterday afternoon. Party primaries will be held May 24th. Voters in both major parties will have plenty of races to choose nominees. Republicans across the state will select candidates for U.S. Senate and House positions, as well as four state constitutional offices and many state legislative seats. Arkansas Democrats will pick nominees for U.S. Senate and two constitutional offices. The Arkansas Department of Health is reporting 55 COVID-19 deaths in the latest 24-hour monitoring period, the biggest one-day increase in more than a year. Hospitalizations declined by six, with 449 people being treated. That's the lowest number in about four months. In his weekly press conference yesterday, Governor Asa Hutchinson did not directly discuss the latest numbers, but he did say the state has received assurances that federal funding will continue covering pandemic-related expenses for the coming months. University of Arkansas is updating its mask policy. An email to the campus community yesterday from Interim Chancellor Charles Robinson notes the campus will move to a mask-recommended policy in almost all campus areas, effective immediately. Robinson writes the decision is a result of several factors, including the declining COVID-19 transmission rate in the community, rising vaccination rates among the U of A faculty, students, and staff, and a recent shift in CDC guidance. Masks remain mandatory in the Pat Walker Health Center, the Speech and Hearing Clinic, and on U of A transit buses. Fayetteville nonprofits have until March 18th to apply for major American Rescue Plan grants to specifically help address community needs as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Stephen Dodson is the internal auditor for the city of Fayetteville. The portal is linked from uh, the city of Fayetteville website. It's the American Rescue Plan Act nonprofit applicant submission portal. We're looking for um, qualifying nonprofits that have been um, um, operating for uh, a minimum of three years and have experience uh, working on projects um, for the residents of Fayetteville. The city was awarded nearly $18 million in federal rescue plan dollars for COVID-19 response and recovery. Half of that distributed last April, the rest this April. Nonprofit applicants are eligible to receive a minimum of $50,000 each for major environmental, economic, and social service projects that target low to moderate income residents, as well as those harmed in some way by the pandemic. All um, qualifying projects would be uh, would actually go before council, and they would be making the decision on on which projects to fund. Priority projects must also be prospective rather than retrospective to address current and future challenges. Applicants must meet strict criteria defined by the City of Fayetteville and the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. And the loss of the first week of Major League Baseball season will not affect the Northwest Arkansas Naturals. The minor league season will start as scheduled next month. The home opener at Arvest Ballpark in Springdale still set for April 12th. This is Ozarks at Large, a new virtual exhibit chronicling the 40-year history of the Women's Project in Arkansas opens tomorrow. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports. The Women's Project exhibit reveals how an incredibly diverse network of women over 40 years worked to eliminate violence against women and children, racism, sexism, homophobia, and economic injustice across both urban and rural districts in Arkansas. Suzanne Farr, a writer and social justice activist, founded the Women's Project in 1980 after working for VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America, a national welfare program initiated in 1965. VISTA volunteers were recruited from all over the country and sent to help people in poverty-stricken areas, including Arkansas. I kept hearing women 
say how much we need someone just to give us some training to stop the problems that we have, you know, to make make change. Farr says she was inspired by the 1970s women's movement, especially the work pushed by radical Black feminists, and to raise consciousness about the rise of right-wing politics embedded in institutionalized patriarchy. The Women's Project started in a living room and in Eureka Springs, and it got funding from the United Methodist Church and then moved, moved to Little Rock. So in a couple of years, we got an office, and then the neighborhood didn't like the strange combination of Black women and white women and lesbians and heterosexuals doing this work in their neighborhood. So we bought a house right on Main Street, right where everybody could see us. They published newsletters, facilitated support groups, demonstrated on the streets, appeared in parades, and provided training. Staff also established a lending library comprised of 10,000 books. Black literature and feminist literature, because there weren't those places where you could go to to get those books from a library. Far ahead of its time, the Women's Project acknowledged and supported gender spectrum equity, multicultural civil rights, as well as disability rights. We had majority women of color leadership on that board. And to be completely open with having lesbians and heterosexuals, whatever sexual identity they had. The Women's Project exposed hate group covert operations by the Klan, Christian Identity, and extremist Patriot Militia, most sequestered on Ozark's wilderness compounds. Staff, board members, and volunteers fanned out across the state to meet with women where they were in discreet small groups. To talk about what was happening with violence against women, violence against lesbians and gay men, violence against people of color, and violence against uh, religious minorities. And in doing that, we decided we needed to be documenting it. That investigative work manifested as the Women's Watch Care Network. So we reported them in great detail how they were killed, what they were wearing, whether their children were present, whether they had been physically attacked, whether they they had been maimed, you know, their bodies attacked in various ways. This, This was transformative. Andrea Hope Howard served on the board of the Women's Project in the 1990s, which she says facilitated her independent work with women in Lee, Phillips, and Monroe counties in the lower Arkansas Delta. The Women's Project helped to keep me grounded so that I could then pass that on to the women who I was working with. And most of those were low-income women who were living in public housing projects. Howard, a retired paralegal administrator for Legal Services of Arkansas and Community Health Center Health Compliance Officer, now works as a social justice engineer. Howard says, working with the Women's Project, she collaborated with Felicia Davidson in particular, who worked with imprisoned women populations in Arkansas on HIV-AIDS outreach. Pioneering work. And what Felicia would do, she would have different AIDS presentations Part of those presentations were done in a, like maybe a healthcare center or other uh, environments, but those presentations were also done here at my home. She also established one of the first food pantries in Lee County. Naturally, it's a rural area with very limited resources. And that was one of the reasons why it was so great to have the Women's Project who came in and, and assisted me not only with the uh, food pantry, but issues facing women here in the Arkansas Delta. The enduring revolutionary work of the Women's Project can be seen and heard in a new virtual, searchable multimedia exhibit opening March 3rd online. Producer Anna Stitt, along with Acadia Rohr, founders of the Arkansas People's History Project, create media on hidden histories of resistance. Acadia and I both grew up in Arkansas, feeling a lot of discouragement about the state. And as we got older, started getting more involved with community work, we started hearing stories about people who had fought to make things better in Arkansas's past, like sharecroppers who organized unions and were killed on up to the Women's Project in the 80s and 90s. And we were like, why have we not heard these stories before? And also, how can we document these in a way that is building power? Anna Stitt, an investigative reporter and podcast producer with Acadia Rohr, a public historian and progressive activist, dedicated five years researching and developing what they call a participatory documentary, interviewing over two dozen women and several men in person and virtually during the pandemic. 
The Women's Project was doing things when nobody else was talking about them. In the 80s, the government was slashing social services and incarcerating more and more people. The HIV epidemic was exploding and violence against women was more intense than ever. And the right, the right was rising. Around the country, there was, as there is now, a lot of denial about these forces. We were not afraid. And here we were confronting the Ku Klux Klansmen, you know. We had boots on the ground. Church women, working women, home mothers, curious women, educated women, rural women. We were all in it together, this band of warriors. I'm Acadia Rower. I co-produced the Women's Project web exhibit. So Anna and I met in 2015 and became aware of the Women's Project around that same time. That summer, we were part of a caravan of Arkansas organizers. Then we were heading to Alabama for a grassroots organizing training. Anna had been doing anti-racist work in the Ozarks, and I was doing the same work in Little Rock. And while we were standing in, in the lunch line at this Alabama training, someone pointed out Suzanne Farr. Farr had left the Women's Project in 1999, moving to Tennessee to serve as director of the Highlander Research and Education Center, a historic civil rights institute focused on social and economic justice. She's since resettled back in Arkansas and has authored a book, Transformation Towards a People's Democracy. And um, Suzanne and I were able to organize together on education justice issues after the Little Rock School District was taken over by the state. And then through her, just started meeting all of these incredible women who have been involved with the Women's Project, started hearing their stories. And I was personally just really energized and surprised about everything that I was learning um, and wanted others to benefit from this wealth of knowledge and history and experience. This is Anna Stitt. We felt that the Women's Project was a whole movement of people doing a wide range of intersectional work. They were testing out these brave and big ideas on the ground. And we wanted a format that could make space for all of that and not have to be condensed into one single narrative story. And so a multimedia exhibit allows people yeah, to engage at different levels of depth and also to engage with different pieces of the story. The virtual exhibit unfolds chapter by chapter. So it's history that hasn't been written and hasn't been documented, but we didn't want it to be on a in a university library somewhere that gathers dust. We wanted it to be out. We wanted it to be in high schools, in college classes. We wanted it to be in organizing study groups. We wanted it to be read by nonprofit staffers, by people in movement, by young people growing up in rural Arkansas. We wanted it to reach a wide range of people. Suzanne Farr says the exhibit's release is timely. One of the things we need most right now in this country is to make connection. Is, the, is to make community, that we can't live and survive well in the kind of divisions that we have. Andrea Hope Howard believes the Women's Project serves as a guiding light for today's young activists. I want somebody who's going to be young and who's going to be willing to carry the torch. So maybe if they look at this uh, website and this exhibit, somebody will be inspired and say, I want to continue the work that the Women's Project was doing. I want to do what they were doing because they made a difference. A Women's Project exhibit launch and virtual gathering hosted by the Arkansas Women's History Project is scheduled March 3rd from 6 to 7 p.m. Find links to both projects on our news web. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Still to come on today's show, that time when almost all of the students at the University of Arkansas went on strike. The governor took the train to Fayetteville, and the Board of Trustees met in a special meeting. The X-ray strike remembered in today's dispatch about University of Arkansas history from Charlie Allison in about 15 minutes on Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Mycelium Networks, a Fayetteville startup building a decentralized wireless network for IoT devices in northwest Arkansas compensating individuals for hosting a small gateway at their home or business to help provide local coverage. Connect nwa.com for more information. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Sherry Otaviano, KUAF's membership director. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back. February is over. 
And I say, that's okay after that's all good. the snow and ice. But before we let February evaporate completely, let's name the KUAF winner for February. Yes. Thank you to everyone who contributed during the month of February. And uh, Kristen Collins of Fayetteville, Arkansas, was randomly selected to receive a few tokens of our appreciation. We have movie passes and some gift cards to Penguin Eds. Very good. All you have to do is contribute in March to be eligible for us to talk about you in 30 days or so. That's correct. Supportkuaf.com. That's right. You're working on, you know, the next fundraiser. The next fundraiser, <laughs> yes. It's coming up. It starts March 28th and runs through April the 1st. And we're hoping uh, to hear from a lot of you. All right. We'll tell you more as we get closer. Sherry Otaviano, KUAF's membership director. Thank you. Kyle, thank you. I'm Scott Tong. Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington State joins us to review President Biden's first State of the Union address and to discuss a stalled legislative agenda. This as the Russian assault on Ukraine continues. We'll have the latest next time on Here and Now. Here and Now, this afternoon at 1 on KUAF. You can listen to KUAF by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF. This is Ozarks at Large. Last week, the podcast Undisciplined was live at the historic St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Fayetteville for a discussion about faith, liberation, justice, and more. The podcast is a collaboration between KUAF, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. And host Karee Banton asked the panel what work is being done and can be done to bring racial justice inside the Christian church. The panelists include Minister Suzanne Bridges, Director of Evangelism at St. James, Dustin McGowan, a pastor in Northwest Arkansas, and Lowell Taylor, who led a project called Reparations Now NWA. We hear first from Lowell. We had an opportunity to, uh, my wife and I, ask white people and churches in our community to give $100,000 to uh, fund a fellow from Northwest Arkansas. Um, and we were able to raise those funds from about two dozen individuals in a half dozen churches, um, and we got two fellows from Northwest Arkansas. One uh, is Dustin's wife, uh, Joy McGowan, who's doing wonderful work with uh, resilient black women, uh, and the other is is Monique Jones, uh, who's doing work here at the church. And, and so I, I won't belabor the, the theory, but I will speak briefly um, to my experience and, and what I've learned um, in interactions uh, with white people and white churches um, which I've also described on our website in a paper that I wrote for a, a seminary class. Um, but I believe that it's true um, what Emerson and Smith wrote in Divided by Faith, and they concluded that white evangelicalism uh, likely does more to perpetuate the racialized society than to reduce it because we've misunderstood the problem of and solution to racism. We think it's a broken black people problem. Data, data supports that statement. Um, but really it's a broken white system problem. Um, we need to widen our view uh, of racism. And, and what I've seen um, as a rule, with some exceptions, um, from, from white pastors, uh, particularly white evangelical pastors, many of whom are, are good people, um, is that uh, many white pastors and churches are willing to admit that racism is a problem. Fewer are willing to commit to anti-racist action, and fewer still are willing to submit to any kind of accountability to do anything about the things that they said that they would do. Um, and, and Dustin mentioned, you know, Matthew 23, which is a, a text that I'm studying in school as well, and this idea that, that Jesus says seven times in that chapter, woe to you, um, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, which I think if we were to translate into our context, would be, woe to you, pastors and elders, hypocrites. You're not practicing what you're preaching. You're not prioritizing the things that are important to me. Um, he called them snakes, blind guides, as did John the Baptist in, in, in Matthew 3. You know, Jesus got, they tried to throw him off a cliff after his first sermon in Luke 4. And so I think that um, the ending wasn't very strong either. They ended up hanging him on a cross. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, Spoiler alert. <laughs> what, are, what are a couple of my 
conclusions currently, which I'm sure will evolve. So I, I concluded this most recent paper that I wrote um, in which I reflected on you know, the last year or so um, with this reparations project um, with, with really two applications for, for myself and people like me. And one is that we need to learn from non-white people. Um, that, that includes, but it isn't limited to African-American folks um, in terms of what we read, who we listen to, who we spend time with, um, particularly how to lament. Um, we, we need to be uh, much more grieved um, by our sins and the sins of our fathers. We need to be angrier um, about the current state of our community and alarmed um, at the consequences um, from a God who loves justice and who hates injustice. He hates it. Um, so we're in trouble um, if we're on the side of injustice, the side of the oppressor, um, because, because God is never on that side. Um, and, and then, and this is not an original statement, this is, this is not Lowell Taylor, but um, we need to leave. Some of us need to leave white churches, taking our tithes with us. Um, I, I can't quote it from memory, but uh, Robert Jones wrote a, two wonderful books. Um, one is The End of White Christian America, and the other is White Too Long. Um, and he quotes James Baldwin, who suggests... Um, that many white people are beyond moral rehabilitation because they've been white too long. Um, and he suggests at the end of this book that real reform may only come from the ashes of the current institutional forms of white Christianity, um, which, which does not mean that people like myself don't love Jesus and don't want to follow him with other folks. Um, I want to do church, um, but, but I think that if we're, if we're, if we're serious about changing uh, the racial status quo, if we're serious about uh, getting from here to equality, um, we need to be a little more radical um, and disruptive than many of us have been to date. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, thinking about what I want to say, uh, <laughs> I appreciate you all. What you doing over there at NWA United? Yeah, so, so with that, uh, uh, I don't want to talk a lot about NWA United. Uh, uh, I, I'm not very heavily involved now, though I was at the Genesis. Um, but I do want to really to preface, to contextualize what I want to say. Uh, uh, there's this quote, uh, if I can uh, quote a, a, a Muslim in a conversation that we're mostly talking about the church. Uh, Malcolm X says that if, if you stab me in the back with a nine-inch knife and you pull it out six inches... That is not progress. If you pull it all the way out, that is still not progress. He said progress is the healing. And we often live in a reality where the knife and the stabbing has not even been acknowledged. And uh, oftentimes what uh, I have a problem with is that our churches have become satisfied with engaging in static uh, actions that they claim are for justice and move the needle forward, uh, and, but wholly neglecting the, the dynamic actions that can be taken to actually create transformational change. Um, that many of our spaces have committed ourselves to doing nothing um, and convincing ourselves that we have done everything. And uh, this is something that I've seen time and time again, that leaders and churches and parishioners would do just enough to alleviate their sense of guilt, um, but not fully commit themselves to the work of justice, um, which demands a lot of your time, a lot of your talents and resources, and uh, often require you to be willing to give up power. Um, and we have seen that we have a church, uh, especially in our country, that is in love with power um, and hoards it um, and oftentimes allows that to prevent them from doing what's right. I sat on this very stage probably two years ago uh, with a pastor, a prominent pastor in this community, who talked about his fear of losing his influence mm -hmm. if he did this work and and his 
voice is not just for his own, right? There are many pastors who feel that way, right? That by them fully engaging in what they know to be true, right? Because I've had conversations with them and they, what they know to be true, right? For the fear of losing members, for the, for the fear of losing donations, for the fear of losing political influence. And, uh, that they will sit on their hands and close their mouths or preach a different gospel publicly, right, than what they would profess privately um, to protect themselves and their own interests. Um, and the reality is nothing changes if people are not willing to give a lot more than what they're willing to give. If we talk about as Christians, what does it mean to follow Jesus, right? Jesus demands everything. If we are willing to give Jesus anything less than our lives, then we are not willing to give him enough, right? If you claim to be a Christian and the call from the gospel to pursue justice, right? If you're not willing to, to if you're willing to give anything less than your life, you're not willing to give enough to be faithful to Jesus. Mm. And those are the hard truths that need to be echoed. They need to be called out. And oftentimes we are willing, we become comfortable with allowing ourselves to appease uh, uh, white leaders and people who aren't willing to really, who really aren't committed to doing the work, uh, but really just want to be able to say, hey, I, I, I heard your conversation. <laughs> you know, we gave a little bit of money here. You know, we're good, right? Mm. Versus, hey, we are engaged in the long work of making this right, right? This, the reality that we have wasn't created in a weekend, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it won't be solved in one either. Right. Are you willing to commit yourself to the long grind of what it what it takes to pursue justice? Yeah. Lots of time. It's I've felt the feelings and I've said the prayer. So let's move on now. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And just just to add to that. So because, you know, I helped with that two years ago. A panel <laughs> discussion that Dustin just uh, referenced. And so what was happening, of course, during that time was, uh, you know, headlines, uh, George Floyd. Um, and so uh, we, we received so many calls, um, numerous uh, pastors in the area. I say numerous. I'll say several. Um, I'm exaggerating. Several um, pa white pastors that reached out. Um, and it was, well, what, what can we do now all, all of a sudden? And it was almost to appease this, I think, this guilt um, that, that was being experienced and, and and, and sadly, what ended up happening was, you know, there may have been some checks cut and there were some conversations, you know, that were had. Um, but now I would say that, do we hear from them now? Um, prob probably not. Yeah. But the next polarizing moment that we feel or those headlines um, are out, then all of a sudden, you know, what, what, what can we do? One of the things, and I'm going to answer your question, so I'm the director of evangelism here at St. James, and one of the things that um, burdens my heart um, is the fact that as a result, and what we don't realize, I think, um, is that as a result of white supremacy, we have on each side, with my white brothers and sisters, we have white supremacy, we have nationalism, and then with my black brothers and sisters, we have this rise of black identity cults and um, other um, sects of, of just uh, falsehood um, that runs rampant. And so Satan likes to use all of that, right, um, in order to further divide um, people. Um, and and it, it is a burden that I carry um, and, and that I thank God for that I carry and that I know that he will use me to continue uh, to preach uh, the gospel and to continue to unite people, um, no matter what color you are, right, what race, um, gender, your background, um, that we are all God's children and that there is work that needs to be done, that we not sit um, complicit in our silence, but that, as Dustin pointed out, we love in action. And so oftentimes I hear from so many people, well, what can we do? What is the work that needs to be done? And I think these gentlemen uh, to my right have already outlined some things that, that can be done. Um, and I'll stop there. That was Suzanne Bridges. We also heard from Dustin McGowan and Lowell Taylor. They were all panelists for the most recent live podcast recording of Undisciplined, a podcast that's a collaboration between KUAF and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas and Ozarks at Large.
Ozarks at Large's Matthew Moore and undisciplined host Karee Banton moderated the conversation. You can hear that entire conversation today in the Undisciplined podcast feed, that podcast available wherever you already get your podcasts. So, you're into music. So is KUAF. It's the music of Joanna Newsom. This week on the KUAF Vinyl Hour. Hey folks, Western Red here, host of If That Ain't Country. Now heard every Saturday night on KUAF. And just like Hi, my name is Paul, your host for the Generic Blues Show, where local and international artists get showcased for over 20 And those are just the local music programs on KUAF. For our weekend lineup of music programs, go to KUAF.com. This is Ozarks at Large. The first 150 years of the University of Arkansas include moments of great achievement and, as is the case with any 150-year-old institution, moments of conflict. For his latest audit of the U of A's history, Charlie Allison, executive editor at University Relations at the U of A, recounts one of those extraordinary episodes of conflict. The note on the postcard did not sound optimistic. Walter Herman, a freshman from McAllister, Oklahoma, wrote to his mother to explain the situation at the university. He wrote, quote, All have gone out. There has been no school since Monday, and faculty says that if we don't go tomorrow, we will be fired. No one is going, so I guess we'll be fired. We'll write tomorrow after I see what they're going to do to us. The photograph on the cover of the postcard illustrated exactly what he meant by gone out. It was a photograph depicting muddy Dixon Street before the days of paving, near the railroad crossing with a long line of students marching up the boardwalk in the middle of the day rather than attending classes. Nearly the entire student body was striking against the university to seek reinstatement of 36 students who had been expelled days earlier. The 36 students in question had published an unauthorized newspaper on February 24, 1912. They called it the X-Ray, the paper without a muzzle and they used it to air complaints about the operation of the university. Calling themselves the iconoclasts, the 36 students criticized the perception of favoritism shown by the admission committee toward students of wealthier families, the poor library facilities, and the waste of $10,000 spent on an athletic field that could have been used to help students or improve faculty salaries. Other protests were lodged against the condition of meeting rooms for the student literary societies and the high prices of goods charged by the local merchants. The faculty met to consider the matter. Rules adopted just a few years previous did not allow the publication of unauthorized newspapers, and the faculty voted to expel the 36 students whose names appeared in the paper. Among them were the captain-elect of the football team, the captain and half the members of the baseball team, and the sons of prominent Arkansans, an associate justice of the Arkansas State Supreme Court, two state tax commissioners, the founder of the Professional Women's Club of Little Rock, the attorney general for the Missouri Pacific and Iron Mountain Railway, and even two members of the university's board of trustees. After the expulsion was announced on February 26th, most of the student body met that evening and signed a petition pledging to go on strike against the university. The next morning, only seven students showed up for classes. The rest, slightly more than 700 students, headed toward the Fayetteville Square when the whistle blew for classes. They marched down Dixon Street with a cadet band at their head. Along the streets, women waved green flags and merchants took pains to display posters and pennants in their shop windows in support of the strikers. (laughs) They knew which side of the fight was good for business. At the Fayetteville Square, leaders of the strike spoke to the crowd of students from the second floor window of the old Bank of Fayetteville. During the afternoon, the movie theater opened its doors to the students for speeches. The next morning, a bonfire was lit on the lawn of Old Main, and students danced in a wide circle around it while the women of Carnal Hall made breakfast and served it on the snow-covered lawn. In the evening, students wrote letters home to explain what was happening. Lilborn Merriweather, the editor of the University Weekly, wrote to his parents to say that he didn't participate in creating the newspaper because he wasn't sure what they might publish, but, quote, Since I believe that the paper trolled the truth and this old university is as full of graft and crookedness as it can be, I agreed to stand by the student body and hold out for the 36 to be reinstated. (laughs) By leap day, February 29th, newspapers statewide picked up the story of the strike, sounding sympathetic to the expelled students, but unsure whether they had pursued the best route for making their case or getting policies changed. Five members of the Board of Trustees, including two with Sons Among the Rabble, met on March 1st at Fayetteville, initially hearing from the students who packed into the Ozark Opera House next door to the Washington County Courthouse. The five trustees asked the faculty and the students to sign an agreement that they would accept whatever decision the board might reach. The faculty signed immediately. The committee of students wavered at some point, considering a compromise. 
The student body hastily called a mass meeting and changed their committee membership. The new students refused to sign the agreement, unwilling to cede any condition that might prevent the 36 expelled students from returning to the student body. On March 2nd, a Saturday, Governor George Donaghy arrived in Fayetteville aboard the Frisco train, and the student body was there to greet him at the depot. He later said, quote, I found all the university students assembled at the depot. There was a coat of muddy ice on the ground, and a dismal rain fell. I could see a mantle of impenetrable gloom on the boys' faces as their band played Home Sweet Home. I felt like calling a hearse. <laughs> Donaghy and the trustees heard from representatives of both sides of the issue at Old Main. The Sunday edition of the Arkansas Gazette ran a photo at the top of page one showing a mob of students at the front door of Old Main. The headline told the whole story. Strike ends in student victory. Board of Trustees declares rules oppressive and the 36 expelled are reinstated. Trustees said that the faculty had acted within the rules that the board itself had set in 1905. But the sense of the trustees was also that the rules under which the students were expelled were unduly oppressive and, quote, operate so as to deny the student body the right to a free and public expression of an honest opinion upon matters pertaining to their own rights as students. The trustees repealed the offending rules, reinstated the students, and announced that a thorough investigation of the students' charges would be made. Word quickly filtered out of Old Main to the front porches of Buchanan Hall, Gray Hall, Hill Hall, and Carnell Hall. Students converged on Old Main and congratulated one another briefly before bolting for the telegraph office to send word home to their parents that the strike was over and classes would resume. An hour after the trustees made their decision that Saturday, students returned to their schoolwork, bending over study tables and drawing boards and even requesting that professors assign additional work to make up for the lost days. Across town, the green flags and storefront posters came down even before Donaghy and the trustees boarded the Frisco's southbound cannonball for Little Rock. Peace and quiet returned to the hill. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas. Each week, he gives us bits of the U of A's history as the school observes its sesquicentennial. Other observances of the anniversary can be found at 150.uark.edu. This is Ozarks at Large. The movie In a Different Key explores the world of autism, including a profile of the first person believed to be officially diagnosed with autism. While the movie's national premiere on PBS will occur this autumn, a special screening will take place in Centerton Saturday afternoon. After the screening, there will be discussion with filmmakers Karen Zucker and John Donvan. This week, we reach John and Karen, as well as Celeste Michu with the nonprofit Perspectability, the host organization for the screening this weekend. Karen Zucker says In a Different Key has roots in her family and in her longtime professional relationship with co-producer John Donvan. I was a producer and John was a correspondent and my son was diagnosed with autism. And I asked John to help get the story about autism out into the world. And a few decades later, he's still at it for some reason. Luckily for me, I, I was mostly motivated by m meeting Karen's son when he was uh, three years old and diagnosed. And at that time in the late 90s, uh, it's hard to believe, but people knew way less, uh, even the term autism than do now. Uh, a lot has changed in those 27 years that her son Mickey's been uh, on this planet. And I also have a brother-in-law uh, who lives in Israel who's um, autistic as well, whom I don't know as well as I know Mickey, actually, because he's so far away. But um Karen wanted to go on this mission of informing, using the platform that she had at ABC News to do stories to inform the world about people on the spectrum and their lives and their challenges and their gifts. And I was happy to be her partner in that. What I love is in the first few seconds, we're reminded that that spectrum is wide, that you cannot, as is with any segment of our population, you can't pigeonhole people who have been diagnosed with autism. No, it's... um. I, 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 in the earlier days, I would say in the time that the diagnosis was first conceived, which is not that long ago, it was only in the 1940s, uh, it, was, it was more narrowly defined. It was more clear cut what we meant by an autistic person. And, and you could, the, the label, so to speak, was easier to apply. But now um, the definition over the years has broadened and, and loosened. And 
it's it's to the point now where a person with autism may be a person who's a, a college professor who drives to work every day but has social challenges and at the other end would be somebody like my brother-in-law who requires 24-hour care uh, who who would not be able to take care of himself uh, out in the world at large in any way, could be taken advantage of, could would probably walk into traffic, not understanding that the cars won't stop when they see him. That was part of our mission in the film was to <clears throat> lay out the breadth of the spectrum so people would understand that there are, are so many different um, dimensions to autism. So let's, let me bring you in. Uh, you're joining us from, from Rogers during this conversation. You've connected with John and Karen so that we can all see this film. That's right. I came across a um, advertisement whenever they were showing the film in Arizona, actually. And I watched the trailer and I, I immediately was intrigued and very excited because really they're telling the lived experience and the, and the story of autism. When they did that, they're, they're telling our story, too. A lot of us that are parents of children with differences... Um, we really enjoy our story being told and that the, and it really validates our experience, you know. Karen, one of the, the people we meet in the film is Don, who is in Forest, Mississippi. And it turns out Don was the first person to be diagnosed as autistic. Yeah, that's one of the, the, the diamonds of the film is that we were, as journalists, fortunate to, to be able to find him and get him and his community to tell their story, a story that really had never been told before. Um, and when Donald was diagnosed with autism, there was no definition of autism. Doesn't mean that autism didn't exist, but um, Donald T was you know, autism's first case. One of the things that comes through in this film is the strength of family and how families work together and live together and love together. Uh, and, and I think to, you know, Don's parents, because at that time, but his parents after a few years said, no, we're, we're going to bring him back. And that wonderful description that Don's father wrote to Johns Hopkins, you know, it's giving us what is kind of the first written um, description of what autism can manifest, how it can manifest. Yes, it's correct that Donald's father, who was a lawyer, he wasn't a psychiatrist, a psychologist, he wrote this description of Donald, which became kind of the template um, for for the early diagnosis of the early description of the diagnosis. And that template persists to this day that his words are still used in descriptions of the of the of, of this of the condition now and, and used all over the world. But Donald's family, Karen's family, my wife's family. Um, Celeste's family, they, they all live a reality that is kind of not understood by people outside what's called the autism community. And so Karen and I made the film, uh, I was, it was great to hear Celeste say it's our story, but we made the film to share the story with people outside the autism community. We made it to be like just plain interesting, hey, here's the first person ever diagnosed with autism. And, and because the, the and, and we're so delighted to be coming to Northwest Arkansas because our goal is to Actually, Karen and I have jokingly referred to people outside the autism community and lovingly as the civilians. And our goal is to say to the civilians, come see this movie. This is your story, too, because your willingness to accept somebody on the spectrum, your willingness to be friends with a, a workmate, a classmate with somebody on the spectrum and in recognizing their full humanity and just really be friends has an enormous impact on the ability of that person to, to belong to the community. So, um the whole idea is to say, yeah, there are families like yours and like everyone in this conversation, but we want, we're all part of the family. We want everybody to come see the movie and to, and to kind of get what autism is about and to get that they have a part in the story too. And Celeste, that's, that goes, you know, right with, with your nonprofit. Yes, it really does. It goes right along with it. And that's what we're what that's what we hope to have an impact in Northwest Arkansas is really bring about additional knowledge. You know, the name of our nonprofit is Perspectability for a reason, and it's because what uh, when a group of us moms came together and we were really trying to seek out what it is that the community needed, what are we missing? How are we going to cause additional um 
you know, inclusionary thoughts and, and break down any barriers um, that are unnecessary. One of the things that we decided was really that they lacked lived experience and therefore they have, um, you know, many people have the inability to have this perspective, right? And so that's how we came up with perspectability. It's not really that anyone desires to, um, you know, cause barriers or what have you. It's just they don't have that lived experience. And so they're not really sure their part in the community. And so any way that we can bring about conversations to get that going and get people talking about how the neurodivergent community is being supported or not being supported, you know, that's what we're after. And that's why with this particular event, we worked very hard to get sponsorship to make this a free event. We don't want it to be a fundraising event. We, we, our goal is about conversation and connection and dialogue on what we can do. You know, what can, how can we further support this community and make sure that we have a place for them here? And Karen and I, Karen and I are coming to the to the screening on on Saturday because we we want to meet this community. Um, and and what we would love to see is is people coming to the movie because they have a connection to autism, but also bringing somebody along who doesn't. You know, saying to your neighbor or your aunt. Tilly, who doesn't understand why the family is stressed sometimes, come along and see this movie. It's we we're very happy to say we. we I don't want to sound too boastful, but the movie has done really well in film festivals. It's won prizes with people who have nothing to do with autism. It's just a good movie, and we just think it's going to be a lovely, lovely event on Saturday. And um, and uh, and and as Celeste said, the, the perspectability has arranged it so that you just have to reach out to perspectability to get an invitation to come, and and everybody is welcome. When when children were put in, you know, sanitariums, or I think there were other terms that they use. Not only was that encouraged to have the children out of the family, the families were told not to talk about it. That this shame that went along with it, and one way you battle that is to have films and gatherings like we're going to have this weekend. Yeah, it's just, it's it's amazing how not that long ago that stigma that you're talking about was was dominant and powerful. And if you had somebody in the family who who was different, interestingly, the the, the higher up the, the social chain you were, the richer you were, the bigger the town you lived in, the more likely were people were to sort of hide away those children. And, and sometimes families put them in institutions and never saw them again. Interestingly, it was usually families of less means in smaller communities who were more accepting. Mm. And Donald's family, Donald had the small community, but his family was way up the food chain. They were very wealthy and they had a a lot of social standing. And I think that's probably maybe has something to do with why they did at first say, okay, we're going to go along with the system and put him away. And then has everything to do with why they changed their minds and pulled him out and said, we're not going to, we're not going to play it that way. He's coming home. He's going to live with us. He's going to be part of this community. And he was embraced, um, which is really extraordinary. The, The first child ever diagnosed with autism turned out to have such a very, very good life. Karen Zucker and John Donvan are co-producers of the film In a Different Key. Celeste Michoud is with the nonprofit Perspectability. That's the organization hosting the Saturday screening. The Northwest Arkansas screening is Saturday afternoon at 1.30 at 1351 Gamble Road in Centerton. You can find out more at the Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn pages for Perspectability or at perspectability.org. We have links at ozarksatlarge.com. Parents of service members killed in a training accident off the California coast two years ago struggle to understand what happened. I'd rather have my son die in combat because I would have been prepared for this. I would accept it so much more. I'm Ari Shapiro, a quest for answers and justice, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered, today from 3 to 6 on KUAF. And take KUAF with you anywhere by using the free KUAF app. The people who supply blood to hospitals have had a challenging two years, and last week's ice storms didn't make anything easier. We called Danny Cervantes with the Arkansas Blood Institute this week to see how another bout of winter weather affected the collections across Arkansas, Oklahoma, and parts of Texas. That one day, for every day, we need about 1,200 donations to come in every day. Um, We've experienced um, for two straight days of getting almost nothing, which, which... 
you know, it was probably right about 2,000, um, 2000 donors that, that didn't come in that we were expecting to come in, needing to come in. And then it actually has taken a toll on us for four days because the other two days it was, you know, a little bit of thawing out going on. The thaw out process is what hurt us because it took so long this time for it to, to melt, um, even when it was sunny outside. So it really has taken a real, a real big toll, um, toll on us and, and put us about, you know, 2,500 um, um, donations down um, just in the last couple of days. How do you make up 2,500 donations? The only way that we can do it is by th- doing things like this, you know, being on the radio, being on TV, being, you know, uh, sending out emails to our donors and just letting them know that, you know, the next, the next week is probably going to be critical. So the blood drives that we have coming up, you know, we really, you know, ask people either to come into our fixed site locations or go out find a, a, a mobile unit that's out um, and, 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 you know, that's, that's uh, kind of close to you and, and, and come out and invite everybody you can, bring a friend along with you and, and see if we can dig out of this hole. Have you seen the phenomenon um, that when you have uh, a weather event or, or, or something that sort of gets you to zero for days of collection. Do you see a spike in donations to help um, rectify that deficit? Is, is that a phenomenon that's common? Yes, it is. Um, and again, it's been a little bit different over this last year. You know, things that we've, we've seen, uh, you know, commonly coming back has not been there. It's been in, in different, um, different areas. Um, you know, and, and one, the reason why this one is so difficult probably is because this is actually the second weather um, delay that we've had um, um, that, that's hurt us in this month of February. We had one at the very beginning of February, and we had just come back from that one um, when this one this one hit. So it's uh, you know it, it's the whole roller coaster thing is really taking its toll on us. So so by us spreading the word and going out and, and having people on our behalf spread the word, you know it helps us uh, see those uh, donation amounts go you know spike back up over the next couple of days, and it's going to be critical over the next five days for us to to really see an influx in blood donations. The other thing too is you know our, our blood drop partners continue to be low, so anybody that's in the area that feels it's like they could do a great um, community service project and and want to help us out in the community wants to schedule a blood drop and can you know either as part of a member of a church that don't, doesn't do regular blood drives or a school or just in the community in general and can find a community center or a location for us to come and park our blood mobile. We're continually looking for partners to be able to fill our calendar and get enough blood for our, for our local hospitals. We talked with Danny Cervantes with the Arkansas Blood Institute earlier this week. You can learn more about donating blood or hosting a blood drive at ARKBI.org. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Springdale. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, and KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can find out more about us online at ozarksatlarge.com. You can listen to KUAF by asking your smart speaker to please play. KUAF. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors to this program today included Jacqueline Froelich, Dr. Karee Banton, and Charlie Allison. Thanks to Sherry Ottaviano, our membership director, for participating today. Undiscipline is produced by Matthew Moore. And a reminder, the newest episode of Undiscipline available right now through all major podcast distributors. We'll be back with you tomorrow with a brand new Thursday edition of Ozarks at Large. Timothy Dennis and I will help you plan your live music weekend. It's March. It's going to be warmer. All kinds of live music all over the place. Leah Uribe has sound perimeter and much more. Ozarks at Large tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. Also available through a podcast through all major podcast distributors. Our theme is titled First Raw. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thank you so much for spending part of your Wednesday with us from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself.